All right, so I want to preach to you today from a passage of Scripture that I have preached from in the past. And Lord willing, if he tarries, I'm going to preach again from this text in the future because it's a text that's worth repeating. For it is of first importance, the Apostle Paul would tell us. And it's of first importance because it's a message that is too good not to be true. It's the gospel. We can find that message in what I'm going to call the gospel according to Isaiah, the prophet. And I pray that this glorious reminder will bless you this resurrection day. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 52 and 53 this morning. And here in this section of scripture, I want to point out three truths that are too good not to be true. I'll give you an outline. First, Isaiah will reveal the truth to us about God's unbelievable humiliation in chapter 52, 13 to 53, 3. And secondly, Isaiah will reveal the truth to us about God's unequaled compassion in 53, 4 to 9. And thirdly, Isaiah will reveal the truth to us about God's unquestionable satisfaction in verses 10 to 12. I think most of us, if you've been raised in church, are probably familiar somewhat with Isaiah. He is a prophet of God, and he writes in this section of Scripture about the suffering servant, the Messiah, which we now know as the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah's message reveals to us an incredible prophecy and some incredible good news about God the Father's suffering servant, Our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. The first thing that we learn here is that Isaiah's gospel, number one, reveals God the Son's unbelievable humiliation, his condescension, is speaking of his incarnation. Look with me, if you will, at Isaiah 52, 13, down to verse 3 of chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. His his face speaking there in verse 14 is his appearance and his form is speaking of his body. It will be marred. It will be beyond human semblance. So shall he sprinkle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed this report, he says? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, the the omnipotent power of God been revealed? For he, again speaking about the servant Jesus in the future, 750 years or so, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised. Vile is the idea. And we esteemed him not. So Isaiah's writing here to reveal something to us about the one who would come to be our savior. 
And he would come in a form in which man would be shocked by, which is interesting. Verse 15, my ESV translation has he will sprinkle many nations. And there's a whole contextual issue going on in that text. But part of the point of what he's saying here, sprinkle could be translated startle or shock. There's a double meaning in what's going on there. We won't get into the details of that, but it's important to know because Isaiah is revealing us to us here. This unbelievable humiliation of God the Son. He's revealing the good news of God the Son, Jesus Christ, incarnation. God taking on flesh. And this passage also goes on to reveal something about man. It will reveal what our response would be like in light of who he was and what he did. This passage reveals mankind's reaction to God the Son becoming our suffering Savior. And it's not the kind of reaction that you would expect. I mean, we think of Jesus now as the glorious son of God, savior of sinners, and we are in awe of him. But at the time that he came, no man looked upon his appearance and thought this is the one. God worked in his own way to bring about this glorious incarnation so that we would have to trust in God's revelation of who Jesus was in his word that was prophesied here in Isaiah 53. Now, in in verses 14 and 15, Isaiah tells us that this is a startling, humanly unbelievable message that he's about to deliver to the people of Israel at that time. He's going to tell them this will startle the wisdom of men. It'll it'll startle them. It'll open blinded eyes. We'll see later on and it'll cleanse or sprinkle sinners with the blood of God's son. This this message or report that Isaiah is delivering to us was was both to shock And cleanse sinners because it will actually reveal what God's Messiah came to do and what God's Messiah accomplished. It reveals both the the supremacy or the supremely exalted Christ that's spoken of in verse 13. He'll be high. He'll be lifted up and he'll be exalted. It's it's exponential is what he's saying. He's going to be one that is beyond your comprehension and his glory. But in the next breath, he says, but he'll be one that will be so marred by You and I, by sin, that he'll be unrecognizable to many. He's he's not only revealing to us the supremely exalted position of Christ in this text, he's also revealing to us the supremely degraded condition of Christ because of our sin in this text. And he's doing that to show us that this is what it would take to save you. He's going to send a substitute and a savior who both shed his blood and cover your sins and then be exalted to God's right hand as the Lord of lords and kings of kings. This is Jesus he's pointing to. This is the message that Isaiah is bringing to the people of Israel then and to us today. And it was a humanly unbelievable message. And you know people, and there may be people here today that this does not seem humanly reasonable or believable, but yet this is God's written revelation, inspired, inerrant, and sufficient to bring sinners to the saving knowledge of Christ. And this message is fleshed out for us in the Gospels. We're all thankful for the Gospels because we get to see What Isaiah longed to see, what he looked into, we actually now know was Jesus. And we see that in the Gospels. And this message is taking on flesh there for us when we see that that God, the son in Matthew one, we won't read it. But in Matthew one, God, the son comes to us wrapped in human flesh, lying in a manger. That seems ridiculous 
to sinners. How could a babe in a manger save another sinner here on earth? He couldn't in their own estimation. But he was a sinless child sent by the Father to redeem his people from their sins. When Jesus came and he took on flesh and he was wrapped in this human skin, if you will, lying in a manger, there there was no celebration on the day of his birth. But there will be a celebration on the day that we see him again. At this time, though, there was no pomp, no circumstance. No, No kingly robes were there to wrap him up in. It was swaddling claws. He came in a way that was shocking to mankind. He came wrapped in humility, clothed in humility. And that's what Isaiah is pointing out, that this Messiah that's coming is not just coming to be this great leader of Israel. He's coming to be the savior of sinners. And to do that, he must become like you yet without sin to be your substitute. Because God's law demands absolute perfection, obedience and righteousness. And none of us meet that requirement. So he sent one who would to take our place. Look back there in Isaiah 53, 2 and 3. As he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. He, Jesus, we know, was despised and we esteemed him not. We, we thought he deserved this. He was considered vile in our sight When he was going under the wrath of his father in our place, we thought this could not be the savior of sinners. He is being punished with the wrath of God. Yet he says, I came to do this, not for myself, but for you, for sinners who look to him in faith and believe God's revelation. There in verses two and three, Isaiah tells us that that Jesus grew up in obscurity, in humility, And yet we now know that he is worthy of all praise and exaltation, which is how Isaiah starts this whole story. The suffering servant of the of the God of the created universe and world, he has sent his son to take on flesh and he will do what he is called to do perfectly. He is worthy of praise and exaltation and obedience. Yet when you see him, you recognize that he's nothing more than just a mere man in man's own opinion, apart from God's. Illumination of his spirit. The text says that he grew up suffering. He grew up being mocked. He grew up full of sorrow. Well, all those things happened not because of what he had done wrong, but because of what we do wrong and what only he could do perfectly in our place. He he suffered for our sins so that we could be saved. But understand this. Jesus lived a real human life, a real human, truly human, truly God Life, though, he lived a real human life. He suffered pain and hunger. The very one who deserved to be fed and nourished and healthy and well, he chose to suffer pain and sorrow on behalf of us. He was mocked. And we we see the mocking of Jesus at the crucifixion. It's very plain and simple there. But I want you to know one thing about that. You can't look at the mockers and think I'm not among them. You would have been there and you have been there before God saved your soul. He was mocked by sinners. Imagine Jesus, the sinless son of God, as a teenager. And when everyone wants to go do this, Jesus says, no, 
for that is sin. It is wrong. You think teenagers would respond to that positively? No, they were no different then than they are now. They would have mocked him. But he was here to do his father's will. He endured mocking because we deserve to be mocked. But he endured mocking by sinners to become our sympathetic high priest. If you've been righteous, if you want to live a righteous life, if you want to be holy, you're going to be mocked. Jesus understands that. He was full of sorrows. There's never been a man on this planet full of sorrows like this man. This man saw the sinful condition of mankind and was in shock over that. He was broken hearted over that. He weeps at the tomb of Lazarus because of the unbelief of those around him. He had been teaching and because of what sin produced in Lazarus, it killed him. It put him to death. None of us are even that sensitive to the sins that we battle with every day that we would weep like this. Yet he was full of sorrow. I don't know that that word full has an end cap on it. He was constantly in sorrow when he saw the sinful condition of mankind because of the curse that we brought upon ourselves. And that, that, that suffering he went through was part of his calling as our sympathetic high priest. But that human suffering, that daily suffering that Jesus endured as a true man, that human rejection, he felt... It did not even come close to comparing to the suffering that he would feel when he went to the cross under God the Father's wrath for our sin in our place. The Father turns away and places our iniquity on his Son, the sinless Son of God. Imputes or credits our wickedness, not generically, but specifically the things that you and I have thought of and done and even the unborn sins he now bore on the cross in our place and the wrath of God fell upon him. He suffered there like no man had ever suffered or ever could because he was truly God as well as truly man, righteous in all his ways. On the cross, it tells us here in Isaiah that Jesus would be stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, crushed all by his father for our sins, for our transgressions against God's law. This Jesus who suffers here in Isaiah 53, this Jesus deserved to be praised. He deserves to be honored. He deserves to have all Praise and honor throughout all his life and throughout eternity because he was perfectly faithful and obedient to the Father's will, unlike us. You know, if we, we talk about suffering that we go through, and it's like, it's not fair. You know, I deserve this. No, saints and sinners, you don't deserve anything but God's wrath. And whatever good you have came from your Father above, and he has given you more than you could ever deserve because of his Son who took your place. Jesus, in an amazing way, did this not under the compulsion of his father, but willfully as the perfect son. He chose to suffer this way. He chose to die this way for the sake of all those he came to save. This is absolutely shocking, startling, amazing. He is worthy of all praise due to this. Just think about this, saints. Be freshly amazed by this. Do not let the gospel fall on deaf ears this morning. I don't care how long you've been a a believer. Jesus, creator, sustainer, savior of sinners, God the Son, willfully chose to condescend to take on flesh, to be despised by his Father in our place. That is 
That is so amazing. That is that's why heaven, I think, is eternally long. We'll never find an end to the praise that we cultivate in our heart when we see the work of Christ, because he is worthy of eternal praise for this miracle of regeneration that he accomplished for us. He, he brought salvation to man. He willfully chose to take on flesh and be despised for us. He did that because we are the ones who deserve to be despised and rejected by God the Father. We deserve that. But it's very clear in Scripture, as we read Ephesians 2, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his beloved Son to be rejected, so we can be eternally forgiven, accepted, and loved by the Father. And Isaiah is simply saying here in this passage, this is humanly unbelievable. It's a humanly unbelievable message, and it's an unequaled message. Just just think about it. God the Son came to rescue you by taking your place personally in life. See, you're not just saved by the death of Christ. You're saved by the righteous life of Christ. His righteousness is credited to your account on the cross as your sin is credited to his. You receive grace upon grace in that. He came to take your place. Friends, we all deserve to hang on that cross and in hell for eternity. The only reason we get out of that is because of this. Jesus stepped in and took our place because the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. It always makes me think when I, when I go through Isaiah 53 of the old hymn, which there's a modern version of it I don't care for as much, but the old hymn is Amazing Love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Do you really stop and think about this gospel message is for you specifically? You. Not your neighbor, not your spouse, not your kids. You. And it's came to you through the condescension of the Son. This, this message should both produce rejoicing in us and repentance in our hearts today as we go through the remainder here of Isaiah 53. Secondly here in Isaiah 53, 4 to 9. We can we can see that the gospel, according to Isaiah, also reveals, secondly, the good news of God, the father's unequaled compassion for sinners like us. I've already alluded to that. Look at verses four to nine. Surely, speaking of Jesus, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The word carried implies in it a word that you don't hear often today, the word expiated. Expiated. Leviticus 16 will help you understand that. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. In other words, he was the scapegoat that's spoken of in Leviticus 16. The sins of the people were put on the scapegoat and cast out to carry them away. Jesus is doing that here in this text. And even though he did that, it says we esteemed him stricken. He deserved it. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah says. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sin guilt. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us shalom, peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It's comprehensive healing, not physical in the immediate, but comprehensively, eternally healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's imputed our sins to him. 
He received the penalty for our sins. He is our substitute. Even in light of all that we see about him, we didn't even want to turn to him apart from God coming to us and opening our eyes to see the truth. We're like sheep that have gone astray without a shepherd. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, damned out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. He's not put to death because of his own sins, but for ours, the people, the, the spiritual sons of Abraham. And they made his grave with the wicked man, with the wicked and with a man, a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth is the righteous substitute who's standing in our stead here. I think verses four to nine should make us step back and and consider this. The one who came, the one who came and, and gave himself freely for us was willing to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. How could how could they do that? How could they see this in this prophecy? How could they see this at Golgotha and think this? How could they look at the one who had this amazing testimony of healing and doing good and being righteous, raising the dead, never finding a fault in him? And yet they esteemed him as deserving what he is undergoing. How could they do that? How how blind must they be? Right. How blind were you? Did you see the savior? Until he opened your eyes, you did not. You know what you did? You did what these people would do here. You were blinded by your own self-righteousness and your spiritually dead hearts. And and you wouldn't be able to see God's mercy just like they couldn't see God's mercy. They didn't think that they needed a substitute. Why would we need a substitute? We are righteous. We are following all the rules. We're religious. We're spiritual. They couldn't imagine that their good deeds wouldn't be sufficient to praise God. How how would you dare think that I need someone to take my place? I am a keeper of the law. I am righteous. I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible three times a day. Folks, your works are as filthy rags, according to Isaiah. Even your best deeds are tainted by sin. And you would stand at the cross and think, I don't I don't deserve what he's getting. Therefore, I must be righteous. He must be unrighteous. And that's the way all of us looked at the cross before Christ opened our eyes to see the truth. Before God opens our eyes to see our self-righteousness, we think just like the people did when they saw him at the cross. We were all there, as I said earlier. We were all here in Isaiah 53 and we were all at Golgotha crying, crucify him. He deserves this. I'm a righteous man. I'm a righteous woman. I do all the right things. You would all cry that because you couldn't see, apart from God's sovereign grace, Jesus's unequaled beauty and your desperate need for God's mercy until he opens your eyes. You were blinded by your sin and your self-righteousness. One of the most deadly sins that many church people commit every single week is self-righteousness. Being here this morning does not draw you closer to God and his love for you. 
You're here this morning because he drew you in love of his own son's perfect work. He drew you to show you how gracious he has been and how merciful he is in sending a substitute to take your place. We were all blinded until he opened our eyes to see his unequaled mercy in Christ's sacrifice. Just think about the day you were born again. You lived a life of, of sin, selfishness, self-righteousness. And the day that God opened your eyes, you wept over those things that you once loved. And you now hated and you looked to Christ and he was irresistible to you. That is irresistible grace, by the way. When God opens your eyes to see the wretchedness of your condition and the glorious work of his son, you are drawn irresistibly to Jesus and you will follow him because you know this is God's unequaled compassion at work in my life. Friends, when, when God opens our eyes to see this, to see Christ clearly, here's what you'll realize. Your sins that hung Christ on the cross, those very sins that hung him on the cross, you'll see, you'll see that it was my fault that he suffered the way he did. And you'll see that it was God's love that then held his son on the cross in your stead to receive the full wrath that you and I deserved in hell. That's what you'll see when God opens your eyes. I'm going to tell you something. This changes everything. If you're born again, this is your testimony. And your life will be radically different from that point forward. If it's not, I would call you to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. This is not a thing to play with. This is a thing to rejoice over and be amazed by. We, we can see how, how God expresses this unequal compassion to sinners in, in knowing that our, our sins dem, are basically demand God's holy justice. Yet what do we receive when we trust in Jesus? Grace upon grace, forgiveness. Our sins, it says in Scripture, the wages of sin is death. We deserve death, yet we live and even the unregenerate person who is not struck dead immediately upon birth, they have grace to thank for that. It may not be saving grace. It is common grace. But they are accountable to God for the very life they've been given. For the wages of sin is death. Yet God in mercy chose to crush his own son instead of you and I. God in mercy and grace provided a perfect substitute to become a curse for us. Do you recognize your sins were so wretched in God's sight, you should be damned. But instead of damning you, he damns his son on the cross in your stead. We talked about hellfire preaching this morning in the equipping hour. Maybe that's what we need. We need to see the depth of our sin before we can ever see the glorious work of God's son. Look back at Isaiah 53.5. Look at how here in 53.5... Isaiah describes Jesus' death in our place. He's basically going to say, look, this is an unequaled act of compassion at work here. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us shalom, peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Listen, here's what that means. Jesus was crushed to death for our sins so that we would never have to face God's righteous wrath against our sins. Think about this. If you're a believer, consider this carefully and joyfully this morning. He was pierced and crushed to death because of our 
personal offenses to God. Every sin that's committed is committed against God first and then people. Every sin. And Jesus was crushed for our rebellion. The slightest rebellion against God's law, Jesus paid the penalty for in your stead if you believe in him. He was crushed for our deceit, our perversion, our lies, our hatred, our selfishness. He was marred because of us. The sinless son of God was marred by our sins, not his own. Listen, if you read Revelation, you'll see this very clearly. Jesus was eternally scarred as a lamb that had been slain by God the Father so that we could be eternally healed by God's unequaled mercy and grace. That is good news. That is the good news that Isaiah proclaims. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, I think is very important to go along with that. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The sinless Son of God receives your sins, takes them upon himself as the Lamb of God. And this is important. Why does he receive them? Well, it was the Father who interceded on our behalf to do this. It was the Father who does this. And apart from God's sovereign intervention, we would all still be eternally lost. But God is the one who sent his son to rescue his sheep and reveal his mercy personally to them by transferring our guilt to his son, the great shepherd now of our souls. And now we see in that, I think, God's unequaled mercy for his sheep, his unequaled mercy for his people, his elect. We can see that, I think, very clearly in John's gospel. Go there quickly with me. John 10. John 10, verse 14. Jesus is speaking here. Here, as he is speaking, we can see how the Father intercedes for us and sends his Son to rescue his sheep, to, to bring them back, to shepherd them, to bring them into the fold. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. doesn't say anything about goats. He lays his life down for his sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. It's not a question of can you listen to Jesus? You will listen to Jesus's voice if he is your shepherd. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. The father commissioned him. The son willingly picked up the commission and did exactly what the father's will was. He did it willfully and joyfully on our behalf. This is God's unequaled mercy, compassion at work here. Church, we can we can as believers rejoice in this promise that we see there in John 10. We can rejoice because Isaiah shows us that that God, the father, loves to seek out spiritually dead sheep and breathe life into them. And I hope and I really hope I hope that you realize that the life that God, the father, breathes into us is the life that he crushed out of his own son, the Lord Jesus You have breath in your lungs. You have spiritual life because the life of Christ was given up for you. 
to make you God's own. That is unequaled compassion. And it's an unequaled exchange. It's actually what we call as the great exchange. It's spoken of in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is what's happening in Isaiah's gospel message there. In 521 of 2 Corinthians, we see the great exchange he's speaking of that has came to pass through Christ's incarnate work. It says, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him God the Son to be sin, who knew no sin. He was sinless. And here's why he did it. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin. He gives us his righteousness. We are justified by faith in his accomplishment, not on our own. Jesus is the one who does this work to bring about this great salvation that we celebrate every Lord's Day. Go back to Isaiah with me. 53, 7 to 8. And here we'll see God's compassion toward us in this great exchange, kind of fleshed out a little bit more. Speaking of what is going on with the son and what he was going to do to his son. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. This is speaking of the willingness of Jesus to be our substitute. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Saints, if any man could have opened his mouth and cried that this is not right, this is unjust, it would have been this man. But he stayed silent. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. In verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. No deceit in his mouth. 53.9 tells us that he was silent. Jesus could have pled innocence and demanded that all the sinners on the planet pay their own sin debt, but that's not what he does. It says here he opened not his mouth. Silent. Saints, Jesus' silence here is important. Christ was silent so that his sheep can now shout God's praise for all eternity. Think about this. His silence grants us, forgiven sinners, the ability to praise and honor and glorify God now and forever. That's what his silence accomplished. Verse 9 there goes on to say that he was silent, yet he also says he was guiltless. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This means that Jesus was innocent, yet he suffered and bore our guilt as our substitute. Let me tell you why he did this. He did this because that's not us. We're not sinless. We're not innocent. Our feet are swift to shed blood. We're violent. Our tongues, under our tongues, in our mouths, we have venom, the venom of asps. Our words are full of deceits. We deserve God's violence against us. Yet he has nothing violent to say against sinners as he stands in their place. Church, in in verse 9, we can see that Jesus is identifying with us in every way, yet without sin. And we see it further because we can see further that he even identified with us even in the way he died. Jesus, we all know this. I hope you know this. Jesus was murdered. 
He was killed by wicked men and by our sin. He was killed and he was treated like a lawbreaker. He was treated like a lawbreaker because that's exactly what we are. He was our substitute. And he went to a grave condemned in our place. But we all have the good news of what we celebrate today. That grave was only a temporary resting place for Jesus. That grave could not hold perfection, sinlessness. The wages of sin had no power over Jesus. He was sinless. And that's why we can celebrate what we celebrate today. He rose to justify sinners like us. Go to 53, 10 to 12 here. In Isaiah 53, 10 to 12, Isaiah's gospel message, thirdly, reveals to us God's unquestionable satisfaction in his son's work. It reveals to us God's unquestionable satisfaction through the revelation of Christ's resurrection. His life after he was crushed, his life is now spoken of in 10 to 12 as being victorious and accomplishing the task for which he came. Look what it says. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's speaking of the one who suffered and died in the earlier passages. And out of the anguish of his Christ's soul, he shall see God. The father will see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because here's why he's going to do this, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here, Isaiah is telling us that only only Christ and his perfect willful sacrifice could ever satisfy God's just demands. That he requires of us. It says there very plainly in verse 10 that Jesus was crushed. What was he crushed by? He was crushed by the law that would crush us apart from his grace. He was crushed by the law and justice of his father. He wasn't crushed because of his offenses, but for ours. Think about this. The Lord of glory and grace willfully died under the weight of our sins. He was crushed. 5310 confirms that he was crushed by the will of God, the father in our place. I'm a dad and I would not crush one of my kids for your sins. They've got their own to deal with, but I would not crush one of my sons for your sins. But aren't you glad that our heavenly father is so much greater than we are? You need to understand what crush means here. Crush is the Hebrew word dakah. And it was an agonizing way to die. The word describes what it looks like when people are trampled to death by wild animals. Flesh is ripped. Body is torn. I think what Isaiah is saying here is that you need to understand, friends, Jesus was trampled to death by the filthy feet of every sinner who by God's grace now believes upon him. That should fill you with great humility this morning, and I think great joy. Just understand that as we read this, that it's telling us Jesus took on flesh to become our guilt offering, an appeasing sacrifice to God. Propitiation is a full and final payment. 
He propitiated for his people. He made full and complete payment for them by becoming a guilt offering in our place. He took on flesh to both do that and grant us his righteousness and take our curse at the same time. I go back to Isaiah 53, 11 here. And this one section here again, we see that the, the father, God, the father is satisfied with his son's willful sacrifice. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied Christ's willing sacrifice satisfied God's justice against our sins, which was death. As Justin pointed out this morning, if, if you are a sinner and everyone is, someone's got to pay for your crimes against God. It's either going to be you or his glorious substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which will it be? I'll tell you this. In and of yourselves, you'll never make that decision until God regenerates your soul. And when he opens your eyes to see your wretched condition, you will look to Christ as glorious. Christ willingly sacrificed himself to satisfy God's justice on our behalf. On the cross, God, we know this, just reiterating what you all know. On the cross, God the Father poured out the full cup of his eternal wrath that we deserve. And he poured it out on his own son, our substitute. What's amazing to me is Jesus willingly drank the cup. He willingly drank that cup to satisfy God's wrath for us fully. We see that happening in John. Go there with me. John 19. John 19, verse 28. This is the the day of the crucifixion. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Paid in full. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He died. Now, Friends, I truly believe that in this text of John here, that Jesus is desiring to drink. He's expressing thirst because he wants his thirst satisfied for one, one glorious reason. He wants his thirst satisfied so that he could finally and completely say, loudly declare that we are now justified by his finished Work, it is finished. The final declaration is made as the Son of God hangs his head as our substitute in our place on the cross. That's good news, saints. Our sinless Savior paid our sin debt in full as our personal sin bearer and said, It's finished. You have nothing to pay, but look to me. Trust in me. But I, I want to tell you this morning as I conclude. God's gospel, God's good news to sinners doesn't stop at the cross of Christ. The good news goes with Jesus into the tomb. And three days later, it springs forth with resurrection power to reveal that Jesus has conquered our enemies in our place. Jesus' victory is declared in his resurrection. His victory over sin, Satan, and death itself. 
And because of his glorious resurrection, we have hope in resurrection. His glorious resurrection testified to God's full and complete satisfaction with his work in our stead. And it declares to us that we are justified by grace through faith in what Christ did, not in what we could ever do. Isaiah 53, 12 concludes this by reminding us of that. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah here is telling us that Christ's victorious work, this this work that he accomplished is now ours. It's his work imputed to us. His work is now ours by God's grace because Jesus now is going to share the spoils of his victory over sin and death with all those who look to him in faith and believe. All his blood-bought people will share in the spoils of his victory, eternal life. Because of what he did and his empty grave, We are assured that the grave that we're going to face one day will not be our final resting place either, because we have looked to the one whose work has made us able to come into God's presence and dwell there for all eternity. Since we have a rich reward awaiting us when we close our eyes in death. Some days I long for that. I really long for that. One last passage. First Corinthians 15, verse 50. What a glorious day it will be. You think about this. For the believer, when we die, we leave this world of sorrows. We awaken in the very presence of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. No sleeping, no dwelling in purgatory. We are immediately brought into the presence of our Savior to be with him forevermore. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all die and remain dead, is what he's saying. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That's the the time that it takes light to refract from the eyeball. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, the victory of Christ. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Right. Where is your sting? Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us. This is our inheritance that Christ achieved through his work. Who gives to us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we have. This is the spoil of his victory that we look forward to in the future. For the true believer, death is not death to us. It's a step into God's presence. And friends, this this hope is only guaranteed, though, by God's grace. Not your works. Not your self-righteousness. Not your religious activity. It's only guaranteed by God's grace through faith in Christ and his righteous life, his appeasing death and his victorious resurrection. And everyone who trusts in his work and turns from their sins, repents of their sins and of their self-righteousness, they will be accepted in God's sight eternally on that day. They'll be accepted by God's grace through faith in the work of his son, not themselves. 
because Jesus has already done the work for us. Christ satisfied all of God's righteous requirements for us in our place. And his resurrection from the dead actually guarantees that. His work was acceptable to his father. His work was acceptable in our stead. And I said this at the beginning of this message, and I'll say it again. This message in Isaiah is too good not to be true. It's too good not to be true because this is the gospel. This is the only hope for sinners. But it is a glorious hope, assurance. So let me ask you this as I conclude. Have you believed this message today? Have you repented of your sins and looked to Christ alone for your salvation? If you do not, and if you have not, you will perish in your own sins. And you will stand before this God who is gracious and compassionate and who sends his son out of mercy for sinners. You'll stand before him not as the merciful God, but as the judge, the one who will cast your soul into hell. And I beg you today, and I command you in Jesus' name to repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this quick run through Isaiah 53, you would renew our minds, our convictions, and our passion to go and proclaim this message and rejoice in this message and rest in this message because this is the only message worthy of praise and rest and confidence. The glorious gospel you've given to us through a glorious Savior that you sent for us. We pray that you would be honored as we respond to it in obedience and joy in Jesus' name.